You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Catherine Stewart is the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Thank you for joining me, Catherine. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You know, history, when it's written, it can inform us about the past, but the best history also inform us about the present and anticipate the future. The Power Worshippers is the best of the histories. As I read your history and your understanding and deconstruction of the history of religious nationalism in America and its rise and the people who are involved in it, every second that occurred back in the 70s and 80s and 90s informed me of what was going on in this exact minute, right now, even as we anticipate the decision of the newly religious religious, uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and also to anticipate the future as well. Talk about your decision to, you know, follow this subject and look into the past and decide to see how you are going to track this rise of religious nationalism. You know, the whole story started for me back in 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California with our daughter. She was six years old. I had a baby. My daughter was in those, you know, uh, first grade and uh, something called, I learned that something called a good news club was coming to our public elementary school. And my first thought was, oh, I love good news. This is fantastic. But I started to hear stories. I, I learned that they were teaching Bible stories from a non-denominational standpoint in the public school. And look, I'm a big free speech proponent. And I also think you can teach about the Bible, even in public schools, from a truly non-sectarian standpoint as, you know, history or literature, mythology or things like that. But I started to hear stories from other parents in town whose children attended good news clubs that had been established in their public elementary schools. And I started to hear about how kids attending the good news clubs were targeting their peers for their non-Christian peers um, or their Catholic peers for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. They would say they knew the religion of the Good News Club must be true because they had been taught it in school. And look, little kids, uh, they, they cannot distinguish between something that's taught in their public school and that's endorsed by their public school. They think it's being taught in their school. It must be true. They um, Public schools have a cloak of authority in their minds. Um, and I saw that these clubs were really confusing. They were taught by an outside group that was coming in to evangelize these kids. They um, referred to our, our public school children as the harvest and public schools as mission fields. And they would confuse little kids into thinking that their religion was endorsed by the public school and by you know, the government. And, um, and I saw the division that they provoked in our public school where many um, progressive evangelicals um, and many other uh, Christians, uh, Catholics, uh, Unitarians, Episcopalians um, opposed the arrival of the Good News Club. Um, and of course we had representatives of many other faiths in our public school. I saw that they were really the injection of one form of religion into a public elementary school in a diverse community is incredibly divisive. I started to see that the divisiveness was not an unintended consequence of their activity. It was really part of their project. I I recognized that Good News Clubs were just one small part of a much larger agenda to, number one, destroy our public schools as we know them, and also to undermine democracy. So that really got me going on my journey you know, the more I learned about these good news clubs, the more alarmed I became. Uh, I started to follow the legal strategy that had allowed these sectarian groups to be placed inside public schools, whereas such groups used to be excluded because of establishment clause concerns. And it's like a rabbit hole. I fell down and 
and um, I can't get out. <laughs> you know, I really recognized this sort of um, that this was part of a larger war on public education, and the war on public education is is part of a larger product to undermine um, our, our our modern pluralistic democracy. You know, one of the things I think that makes your work so powerful is your own involvement in it, starting as you explain with the Good News Club, but also your sympathy for the people you visit, even if they're, to a certain extent, highly unsympathetic, you put yourself um, in a, the, a church party in Unionville. And so talk about this, because this is a really interesting opening to the book, and it gives us an idea for your way of approaching things as a reporter, which is you're a really generous and open-minded reporter and you managed to get these people to talk about things that I would think they would want to want to hide under a rock. Well, listen, I think a lot of the, when I think we're talking about the movement, we have to distinguish between the leadership and the rank and file. When we're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a large group of people with very wide range of interests and concerns. Um, and, you know, many of them, um, when they want to you know, vote for the political candidate who promises to defend the traditional family, say, or um, things like that, they're not really aiming for larger, like major changes in the way our government is run. They're really making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. So they, they've, they're voting identity, you know, and um, but when we're talking about the leadership of the movement, you know, they're the ones who are really in charge. We're talking about the, lead, the, the leaders of the machine, you know, the machinery of the movement, the leaders of the right-wing policy groups, the legal advocacy groups, the data initiatives, the legislative initiatives, um, the, um, uh, uh, the, the right-wing, I would say, kind of a messaging sphere. They want a lot more power for themselves and their political allies. They want a, a lot of more access to public money. They want policies that privilege a set a set of approved religious uh, religions and viewpoints, and um, and and above all, they want they want power for themselves. So you know, a lot of these folks truly believe they're doing what's right for a country. A lot of them are on a personal level are very nice people. They. Uh, love their children. Uh, they many of them appear to care about their communities, and they may truly believe they're doing what's best for our society. But unfortunately, all their you know well-intentioned efforts are being harnessed in service of an agenda that has um, polarized our country as never before, destroying our democracy, has turned one of our major political parties into a radical party that has frankly betrayed um, the the principles of conservatism. Look. Every a truly conservative movement would prize the integrity of the judiciary. It would prize the electoral system. It would prize institutions like public education, which have served our country so well. Um, and it would would support the separation of of church and state, which has held our country, you know, together in spite of our conflicts, more or less held us together, even as so many other countries are torn apart by sectarian division, but this is a movement that doesn't believe in pluralistic modern democracy. Frankly, it's an authoritarian movement and um, they want power and control for themselves. You know, one of the things that, that interested me was your ability to untangle a really dense web of, you were just mentioning them, you know, research, you got the, the Family Research Council, you just have, there is an entire, you know, bowl of alphabets uh, of different acronyms and different uh, people with slightly, slightly different missions, but all adding to the, the same kind of the right-wing power grab, as it were. And one of the things that that interested me is your is the way that you are able to you know untangle this web and find out how each of these parts operate. It, it's really reminiscent of what you know we kind of think of as the cellular organization of a terrorist movement. Each part 
can function entirely on its own without any of the other parts, but they all inform one another. It's a, it's a very organic movement, isn't it? Well, the movement has invested for decades in all the features of modern political campaigns. So yes, the strength of the movement is in this dense organizational infrastructure and you have a leadership cadre, but the organizations, the you know, features of this, uh, you know, components of this infrastructure don't rely on any particular leader. And that's one of the reasons why the infrastructure is so strong. Um, again, you know, these sort of fundraising operations, uh, leadership training initiatives, right-wing policy organizations, very sophisticated data initiatives, um, they basically are all working together for common political aims. They often, you know, a lot of the leadership, they know one another. They, um, some of them work together through multiple organizations. They have organizations like the Council for National Policy that tend to get, sorry, the leadership on the same page. So, um, you know, sometimes they'll debut an initiative and then, you know, nobody's really talking about, say, this one thing. And then all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it and you're hearing it on through the right wing media all the time. And it's because a decision has been made that this is the sort of new strategy that they're pursuing. You see the same legislative uh, strategy in the legislative sphere. So, um, for instance, um, an organization like um, the Congressional Prayer Caucus which is the group behind an initiative called Project Blitz or was called Project Blitz. They are introducing legislation, model crafting model legislation intended to degrade the separation of church and state. So all of a sudden they'll in, initiate like a, you know, a, a, a bill saying, well, we need to celebrate Christian Heritage Week in public schools. And of course the, the Christian heritage they're referring to is a very particular take on Christian heritage, as we know, Christianity is incredibly diverse in this country, but they've, you know, they want a sort of official Christian heritage week. So they, all of a sudden, you'll see the same multiple bills or very closely worded bills pushed through multiple states. And they know some of these bills are going to fail, but they know that some of them will get through. And they also know that these bills are designed to provoke controversy. And they actually find a way to weaponize that controversy. They'll capture like a, you know, some politicians saying something that they don't like and put it on Fox News or they'll cover the controversy in Fox News in order to sort of push that sort of persecution narrative that is so important to the movement's cohesion. Um, you know, it's one of the things that they do is make people feel like they're being persecuted and silenced and canceled and all that. I mean, it's not true, of course, but... Uh, but it's one of the ways that they, 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 one of their strategies, one of their key strategies. You know, that, that Project Blitz is, is a perfect example of the power and the, the, of well-written history in your book, because you document in Project Blitz, in the chapter on Project Blitz, uh, th these various initiatives to inject, you know, Christian theology into law to, to essentially legislate morality according to a very strict Christian fundamentalist view. And when you wrote that, that there were certain kinds of things happening, but what is interesting to me is that that your chapter on the Blitz explains exactly what's going on now in terms of the the many bills we're seeing on LGBTQ legislation, for example, and, and that's not just all you know prayer in schools. All of this, all of these uh, things that we're seeing now are explained and seen in I guess embryonic form in your historical narrative and that is some really sharp writing in history to see to look at the present so clearly that when it unfolds in the future it's still the present yeah we're seeing the consequences today of decades of planning and strategy um, by uh, leadership of the movement to take over America. They, you know, they this sort of ideology of Christian nationalism is, of course, this idea that um, uh, America was founded as a so-called Christian nation, and it's um, which is tied to specific cultural and religious identities, and they need to quote unquote take it back. Um, they've been sort of and the they've you know they've been really focusing on strategy and not just on 
you know, messaging or, or values, I should say, you know, they've been focusing on sort of a political strategy. It's the end of the day it involves religion, but it's not a religion. It's a political movement. It's also a movement that's based entirely on fiction. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, a really old story by Borges about uh, the discovery of an encyclopedia that has a completely alternate history to the world, but the world likes that history so much better it decides to toss the old history and adopt the new one. That's kind of what we've got going on here with the, the Christian nationalist movement. They have they have fictionalized um, the separation of church and state, which is super clearly explained explicitly stated by the founding fathers in quotes that you provide for us to hand to people whom I suggest otherwise. And but they don't want, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, what they don't want America's, Americans to know is that our founders proudly created the world's first secular republic. They had different religious viewpoints, but when they got together, they recognized that they wanted a a, a secular state, the, the idea of, um, you know, look, the principles of, uh, you know, the, re- the, the principles of pluralism and equality really represent the best of the American promise. Um, those ideals have been applied imperfectly over time, but those are still ideals to strive for. Mm, but they really need to rewrite the history of our country in order to carry out their agenda. And that's one of the reasons why a fellow like, um, David Barton is so valuable to the movement. He tells the sort of creates, comes up with mythology that the movement needs in order to justify their radical actions. Now, David Barton's the fellow I think you will refer to as the Where's Waldo of Christian (laughs) nationalism because he pops up everywhere. And I think that uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about too are the kind of the foundational texts that these things are built upon. Uh, for example, Rush Dooney. Uh, this guy is really interesting because he's a fellow who understood that he was doing nothing original. All he was doing was taking, you know, bits and pieces of other people's ideas about what they would like to see as Christian nationalism and put it together in his own text, which is really severe. I mean, these people are not they are radical. They are not at all. Like when you look at the bottom line, these people are not nice folks. Well, Rushdini was a very interesting character. And when I was researching the power worshippers, I mean, he was so pro- such a prolific writer. I uh, I must have read a dozen of his books. Um, I spent like a one hot summer month. It was like August, and all I was doing was reading Rushdini, and he was like. Um, a really fascinating character because he drew on some of the sort of um, Dutch Reformed theologians. He also drew on some of the influences of pro-slavery theologians, people like Robert Louis Dabney, James Henley Thornwell. And he came up with this sort of idea of a, you know, the idea of America founded um, on biblical principles, um, a kind of theonomy, which is the idea of uh, law based in in, in biblical principles and religious principles, a sort of theocratically influenced law. Um, and uh, yeah, his, his doctrines are very uh, extremely reactionary. I mean, he was um, very sympathetic. He didn't just, you know, quote affirmatively some of these you know, pro-slavery theologians. He actually chose to reprint some of the works of Robert Louis Dabney, who was the leader of the Southern, Southern Presbyterian Church and a great defender of uh, slavery, you know? I mean, um, a lot of religious nationalists in America like to claim that Christians, broadly speaking, were on the side of abolition. And that's not true. Um, There were were anti-slavery theologians, many of them, I've written about a dozen of them uh, in The Power Worshippers, But I also wrote about the much better funded, frankly, much richer pro-slavery theologians, folks like Dabney, um, Thornwell, um, and and a a whole bunch of others. At the time that uh, slavery was being practiced, many, um, you know, as Frederick Douglass said, it was like the well-funded 
pastors, he used to call them the $5,000 divines who are on the slide of the side of the slaveholder. $5,000 was a lot of money at that time. And he said, there are anti-slavery theologians um, who support emancipation. He said, they're, they're speaking from humble pulpits. They're not very well funded. So there was um, obviously uh, different sort of theological viewpoints about slavery. Um, but um, the leaders of most major Southern denominations had either support, supported the institution of slavery or had made their, at least made their peace with it. And then you can see how this sort of uh, doctrine was really uh, distorted. So a leader like uh, John um, uh, Wesley, who's leader of the Methodist church, he hated slavery, but the Southern Methodist church, they, they sort of became more slavery friendly. So you can see how this sort of um, religion sort of adapted to the in these different ways. You, you know, too, when we, as I was reading this really interesting history you wrote about how slavery worked its way into this Christian nationalism movement, um, again, to, to what I was saying earlier, here is a great history that absolutely 100% informs us about you know, the hidden races are not so hidden racism in the current Christian nationalism. Um, this isn't something you write of a lot in the book, but I wanted to talk to you about, you know, these days, Christian nationalism, there's a pretty strong strain of white nationalism mixed in here with, with you know, we've we're dropping in some big globs of, of neo-Nazis. And... It when you read your book, it's not no surprise, is it? Well, you know, it's very interesting. The idea of we're going to talk about two things. The first is the idea of America as an authentically Christian nation with hierarchies um, rooted in God's word and the Bible. The idea of you know um, men over women and often white people over black people or people of color as well the idea that our, our laws should be based on the Bible. These are ideas that people like uh, James Henley Thornwell and Robert Louis Dabney endorsed and, and, uh, and, and explicitly, you know, um, and wrote about over and over. Um, Thornwell actually said the party, he was talking about the fight against abolition. He said the parties in this conflict are atheists, socialists, and communists on one side and friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. Now, who do you think he was putting on the side of order and regulated freedom? It was, it was the slaveholders. He was saying they are the friends of order and regulated freedom and anything against them is, um, you know, atheistic, socialistic, communist, right? I mean, those kinds of, that kind of language. Now, Christian nationalists today, of course, are not endorsing slavery, but we do see a blend of religious nationalism, extreme partisanship, bigotry, and irrationalism that is has a new emphasis in mainstream American politics. And this message is often spread through the rhetoric of Christian nationalism. And, you know, I, I would say if you look at sort of the great replacement conspiracists and Christian nationalists, if you look at a Venn diagram, there's some overlap. They're not quite the same, but there is overlap. And um, the idea that, you know, um, a, a secret cabal is trying to replace the so-called real Americans who are presumed to be Christians and white with so-called invaders or people of color in order to destroy our, our, our country. I mean, for many years, these conspiracies of demographic paranoia were on the fringes of American politics. But unfortunately, in recent years, we were seeing them moving a lot closer to the center. And mainstream, several mainstream Republican Senate candidates are currently drawing and have drawn on these forms of demographic paranoia in their campaigning. You know, one of the things I, I thought that was also a, so interesting was the continual repression of women from the earliest uh, dawn of, of, and I'm talking about the 1980, the when Reagan started had his famous meeting with the, with the Christian called the moral majority, so to speak, up through now, is that you know, even as I, as we sit here, we're waiting for the Supreme Court to hand down the decision. Uh, 
that will, you know, set women back uh, 60 years. So talk about um, the position of women, you know, within the hierarchy because they're super important. I mean, Betsy DeVos managed to do more damage than many of her male counterparts. That's absolutely true. There are a lot of very empowered, I say, you know, women within that um, movement. Um, I think about Betsy DeVos, people like Christian Hawkins. I think about people like Jean Mancini or um, Penny Nance. I mean, there's so many of them. I even think about somebody like Phyllis Schlafly, who played a really enormous role in uniting conservative Catholics with conservative Protestants and played a very foundational role in the rise of the new right. Um, but um, uh that doesn't negate the fact that they're working toward um, a, a society in which um, women's subordination in all of these different ways will be uh, much more institutionalized. I mean, I think very in, in particular about the, um, uh, the, the end of, uh, of, of, of Roe versus Wade, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Most Americans understand that uh, most Americans support abortion rights in in at least some form beyond what the so-called you know what the anti-choice movement supports, and most Americans frankly identify as as pro-life, um, and understand that to revoke a woman's right to uh, control her body, um, take care of her health, uh, and 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 determine her destiny is barbaric and aggressive. But this is a movement that um, has really used the issue of abortion to unite the movement and their aims are really radical. You know, they know very well that the American public would never go along with this kind of regressive agenda um, uh, willingly. And the way forward they've concluded is to take over the courts. They know that if activists can fund and funnel right thinking, supposedly right thinking justices onto the judiciary, that's how they're going to get their agenda through. And that's why there's been such a focus on building up right-wing legal advocacy groups. This is something you cover really well. And one of the things I couldn't help but think about, too, is um, you were talking about conspiracy theories. And, and one of the things that interested me is just the prevalence and the power of flat-out lies. Thing, just falsehoods from the idea that you know the that America is a Christian country is a foundational lie, as it were, and then you have on top of that in the recent decision with Roe v. Wade. I mean, uh, the uh, the the draft decision itself speaks of abortion as something relatively new and not established in American culture when, in fact, abortion was perfectly legal when the country was founded and handled by midwives. And this is, I think, a really interesting uh, aspect of this is that we're, they're attempting to build a new nation on complete lies. <laughs> One thinks that that's such a house of cards that might eventually collapse. Now, the idea that America was founded as a so-called Christian nation um, is an ideology. And the idea that, you know, the so-called right-thinking Americans need to take it back is really an ideology that divides Americans into insiders and outsiders, the sort of us versus them, the pure versus the impure. But um, this is how the issue of abortion has functioned. It's sort of like, this is what, um, it, it's functioned as a way of d dividing among, you know, those, the, the insiders versus the outsiders and the pure versus the poor. I, I was asked a few times, you know, can you be against abortion and still, and you know, not be a Christian nationalist? I mean, absolutely, of course. You know, people take different views on these issues and many people take nuanced views on these issues. But if you allow this one issue to determine your vote, if you are, you know, on the sort of if you are allowing if you're against abortion, you allow that one issue to determine your vote. You are lending support to a Christian nationalist um, agenda and to this kind of division. Um, that division is frankly what authoritarians do. They get their followers to sort of fixate on a supposed 
internal enemy or people who endorse a position that is satanic or demonic, right? Or they call satanic and demonic. And then they stoke that division, frankly, to mask their own failures and often to distract the public from their own corruption. So the culture wars function that way for this movement in many regards. They like, if you can get people to, oh, look at this thing happening in a, uh, you know, there's one trans kid on a sports team in this state, or let's talk about, you know, this, you know, fake CRT race baiting kind of thing. The fact is, you know, our country is facing some real problems. We're, we're, we're divided as never before. We have, you know, like record levels of economic inequality that are, you know, this is a, a part that claimed the movement that claims to stand for family values, but they're in, they're they're supporting politicians who are um, promoting policies, economic policies that are intensifying economic inequality, making it so hard for so many American families to succeed. Um, you know, we have concerns about health care. We have concerns about the environment, education, climate, you name it. And yet they've got us all distracted on some of these, like, frankly, these culture war issues in order to kind of distract from what their larger agenda is. You know, when, when leaders of the movement are talking to the rank and file, right, it's all culture wars all the time. And often it's, you know, you've got to vote your biblical values. Your biblical values are all about marriage. And, you know, and, you know, which they're against gay marriage, of course. And by the way, that's next after the <laughs> after Roe versus Wade. Uh, if anybody thinks they're going to stop with Roe, they 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 might be holding their breath for a long time. Um, but they get us so focused on the culture war issues. But when they talk amongst themselves, you know, and in the forums that they share, it's really about very broad social policy. And a lot of it is about economic policy There's a movement that has support from a number of very plutocratic funders um, who I think many of them are as concerned, if not more concerned with promoting, you know, a kind of free market fundamentalism, far right economic policy than they are with the culture wars. But it's very hard to get the rank and file to vote on those sort of, oh yeah, I want like, you know, less work, work workforce protection and, you know, sure, I, I don't mind if my the stream and my, you know, that bisects my property gets fouled up by some chemical company up the road. If I can, they can, you know, if they think if they're just getting thinking about abortion and the threats to their family by the gay couple across the road, then, you know, they're not thinking about these broader issues. So I think of these cultural issues as these shiny baubles that are used to distract people from some of the, the larger issues facing our country. And two, the the clue to what they're after is in the title of your book, The Power Worshippers, which is the fact, ultimately, it's about the leaders of the movement acquiring more power, being able to wield that power more freely and in an open manner, and to just use it to protect and enrich themselves at the cost of everybody else. They really don't care. That's right. They've reframed the idea of religious liberty as the right of people with certain approved religious perspectives to um, discriminate against others of whom they disapprove, uh, the right to heap contempt onto those who are different or considered to be the outgroups in society, and, um, you know, they, they're using religious liberty almost as an exemption from the laws that apply to everyone else. Yeah, th- this religious freedom aspect in your book is really fascinating to me. Uh, the, the idea that, you know, we are, they have essentially inverted the phrase and, and the idea of religious freedom. The idea of religious freedom is, at least as we understand from the Constitution and the founding was, is that we are free to practice our religion in private. We are free to choose from whatever religion we want in private. And, and, but or in public spaces like, you know, houses of worship and, you know, people practice their faith in public parks and they can even like rent, you know, private businesses for the practice, uh, but not to have it funded by the public. Exactly. And also not to have, you are not free to impose your religious values on me, nor I on you. That, at least that, that's the idea. But what these 
people seem to really want is the freedom to impose their religious beliefs on everybody and to judge them by virtue of how well they adhere to those religious beliefs that are imposed upon them. Yeah, you know, I think people can talk about their faith in the public square. Even politicians can talk about their faith in the public square while still acknowledging that our country is a religiously diverse country and still respecting the principle of church-state separation. But this is a movement that really wants a government endorsement of particular approved religious viewpoints. Um, And as you said, freedom of religion is the freedom of thought, conscience, and worship. It's the freedom to worship any God or sacred idea or none, but it also includes the freedom from being compelled to worship any God if you don't want to. And it also includes the freedom from being compelled to support other people's religion uh, or even your own religion with your tax dollars if you don't want to, right? But in their hands, it's become this whole other thing. It's sort of um, they're really uh, about a much more theocratic order. And you don't see that any more clearly right now. But my little bugaboo here is the state of Oklahoma, where this bill is saying um, abortion is legal from the illegal from the moment of fertilization. OK, so every medical organization, every physician's organization says it's implantation. It's not fertilization when pregnancy begins. No one knows when when there's fertilization occurs. You, there's implantation and then there's the zygote and it turns into a, you know, it's like it, it's, but they're saying moment of fertilization, it's total pure religious dogma, you know, and yet that is now law in one of our states. So the lives people's lives in Oklahoma, their most private and, and consequential decisions about their bodies, about their whether, when to grow and whether to grow their families, um, uh, uh, how they can protect their health is now based and, and, and curtailed by somebody else's religious dogma. I mean, it, 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 it's, this, is, this is, is totally un-American. It's against um, what are what are it, it, it violates the the best of our principles and it violates the what most Americans actually want for our country. The United States has become a, a Monty Python movie to, to wit, every sperm is sacred. Well, well, I'm not sure about that, but it's a really funny, uh, really funny. Uh, uh, segment, yeah. You know, one of the things I thought that you do very well in, in this book is you kind of d- dissect the, the mechanism by which all this is happening. And to that end, you have a fascinating uh, chapter on, on the, the data analysis that goes into this. And it's kind of mind-boggling that when you describe this guy who's just kind of like, poking about the internet and discovers an open database of every American voter. Talk about that and about how they are using uh, technology to advance their somewhat non-technological perspective. Yeah, look, all political parties use data to sharpen their effectiveness in um, political um, contests. But... um, Frankly, I think that uh, one of the differences is that uh, the religious right, a lot of the data that they're collecting sits atop a pyramid that is in the faith-based sphere. So it's exempt from taxes and it's exempt from public scrutiny. Um, So yeah, there's, um, you know, I I wrote about this one initiative um, that is sort of, um, uh, was using this data to target Voters and they what they would do is assign people points. If you have ever signed um, uh, uh, like an anti-marriage equality thing or an anti-abortion thing, or if you're even a member of NASCAR, or if you like fishing or things like that, um, or if you've you know got NRA, um, you know if you own guns, whatever, they would say you're a likely voter, and then they would sort of have these features where they can figure out if people have voted in the last election cycle, if they're, if they're signed up to vote and if they've not signed up, they sort of, you know, target them for, you know, getting them signed up to vote because, you know, they know if you can get a disproportionate number of your people to turn out to vote, 
you don't need a majority to win elections. All you need is a disproportionately organized minority. Um, and right now there are like initiatives like WPA intelligence that are um, using this kind of um, data, you know, that um, to sort of, you know, sign up voters for the right and target them with messaging that will try to turn them out to vote for the supposedly correct candidates that the movement favors. When you talk about that, this kind of uh, data and the organization, it's, I suppose, both ironic but not surprising that, you know, one of the big actors in a way in this this is the DeVoe family, the father of Amway, the father of of the of you know the ultimate pyramid scheme. But that's the way this whole movement is organized. It's you know pastors who who you know talk to the flock, and then they belong to another organization that organizes the pastors and tells them what to say. And that's another pyramid above. There's another pyramid above them. It's this kind of both top-down structure, but also somewhat decentralized. It's incredibly effective. Yeah, you know, the movement leaders know that if you can get pastors, you can get their congregations. So they, you know, they, they, because pastors are very trusted. And so they, they devote, they have these organizations like Watchmen on the Wall or Church United, which draws, draw a number of pastors <clears throat> to these organizations. <clears throat> they, sorry, they give them tools to, that are intended to turn out their congregants to vote their so-called biblical values, which inevitably um, reduced to things like abortion, same-sex marriage. I mean, I went to this events where, you know, tens of thousands of voter guides were, you know, in large stacks and multiple uh, pastors are invited um, and they're, you know, given talking points, even videos they can air at church, what they call sermon starters, tools to help these pastors, um, you know, do their weekly job of giving sermons and um, all of which are intended to get these pastors to turn out their congregations to vote. Um, I, there are even these um, handbooks that were handed out called um, uh, CITs. Uh, was it cultural? Where uh, I can't remember what the acronym stands for. But the idea is to get pastors to create within their churches culture impact teams or community impact teams. That's what they're called. Um, so they, they get these pastors to create within their churches teams of congregants who have good relationships with other congregants, are motivated to get them to vote their so-called biblical values and to you know, do things like run voter registration things and distribute um, the sort of talking points, messaging materials uh, and information to tell these other congregants what the so-called biblical values that matter should be in election cycles. So, you know, um, you know, pastors are, because of their um, tax status, their privileged tax status, they're not supposed to politic from the pulpit. They're not really supposed to say, you should vote for this candidate over that candidate, right? But if they can get their congregants to do it, you know, then they're, you know, they're not endorsing the 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 candidates but they're getting their congregants to do it. it reminds me of like a peewee soccer league right you know um you can see the kids playing on the field but none of the action would be happening without adults on the sideline providing them with the you know the the uniforms and the ball and you know arranging them into teams so but it's a way of trying to skirt the sort of letter of the law while while violating its spirit I thought the book was just amazingly well organized and you have you create these great characters David Barden, Rush Dooney, uh, Betsy DeVos uh, and they're interesting to read about talk about like immersing yourself in this world which is kind of strange and creepy and threatening you know, for as long as it took you to write the book and to manage to do so in a kind of coherent order did you write the chapters separately and then they just fall together? I mean, talk a little bit about trying to yourself organize this, what might seem from the outside like a fairly chaotic and terrifying uh, vision of America. Well, I, 
you know, I first want to say it's it's a feature of our politics. So to me, it's not, you know, I would say, you know, creepier, chaotic, or, or, or I don't know what the other word is that you used. It's alarming. It's anti-democratic. But it, um, I just don't think you can understand what's happening in American politics without understanding something about this movement and its people and its leadership and above all, its structure and the way that it's organized. Um, I've been reporting on this movement since 2009. Uh, Power Worshippers is my second book on the topic. The last, you know, first book on this topic was called The Good News Club, and it was basically about the religious rights assault on um, public education. You know, and there's sort of the reason why why they don't like public ed and sort of efforts to dismantle it while also pushing, you know, trying to, you know, uh, reshape publicly funded education uh, uh, much more to their liking in a way that's more to their liking. So, you know, I've just been working in this movement a long time. And what interests me the most is the political aspects of the movement. Um, so I just kept focusing on that. But um, I really did, um, you know, in the process of my research, found a lot of interesting characters um, and, you know, frankly, stumbled across a lot. But I actually think that listening is underrated. So when you talk to folks and you really try and just keep your mouth shut and open your ears, you can learn a lot about modes of operation and strategy. And that's what I tried to focus on. You know, one of the things that, that is interesting to read in this book is... Um, the presence of, of Donald Trump, because he is kind of, as you explain it, the fulfillment of all their desires. And it's, I think it's so interesting, both politically and culturally, that a man like Donald Trump ends up at the peak of this pyramid. You might expect somebody more like Pence, who... Donald Trump famously was hoping they might hang. <laughs> so, talk about a lot of movement leaders would have preferred um, Ted Cruz, to be honest. I think a lot of them really would have preferred Ted Cruz um, because he's, you know, uh, a lot of the same policies, better haircut. You know, he's a true believer and uh, more, um, you know, uh, less vulgar, you know, for sure. But um, once they realized that, it was, you know, I remember going to, I think it was, was it the Values Voters Summit in advance of the 2020 election? And there were folks there who like could barely say his name, you know. But I think once it was clear that he was the front runner, they were all going to have to get behind him. No, this is even before that. It was like earlier. They realized they were going to all get behind him. They would say things like this election is about judges, 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 you know. And they would say things like, you know, we don't need a savior. We already have a savior. That's Jesus Christ. We need, you know, a leader who's going to do what we want. And at the end of the day, he gave them everything they wanted and more. He threw open the doors to them. He, you know, gave them policies that privilege their religion, lots of access to public money, lots of political access. Um, the judges, you know, he did a few things that really helped cement his support within the movement. He uh, Pence, he uh, said he, he he brought in Pence, who they trusted and knew as his second. He, um, I remember I was at a meeting where he holds up, he was a movement leadership, and he holds up a list of judges, like he's holding up some shiny new bonds, right? And he goes, I'm going to pick Supreme Court from this list, and the judges are all pro-life. And when he says pro-life, it's a signal. It's They're pro-life, but there are also a whole bunch of other policies that are favorable to this movement's agenda. And then he established what they call, you know, his evangelical council, you know, and basically that's offering unprecedented support, you know, access and everything else. So, you know, as one movement leader said, there's no victory without unity. So they, you know, cast aside their their concerns, they all got behind him. And then afterwards, you know, within a few um, beats of him taking the presidency, they were all in. They were comparing him to a biblical king like 
King Cyrus or King David, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will, right? And, um, you know, they're calling him God's God's guy, God's candidate. God put him there for a reason. Um, but here's the thing about... Um, Here's the thing about Trump. I think he, a lot of them actually liked him for his authoritarian style of governance, for his unwillingness to follow the rules. You know, if you believe you're in an apocalyptic struggle between absolute good and absolute evil, you don't want the nice guy fighting for you. You want the, you want the mean guy who's going to crack heads as long as he's cracking the heads of your enemies. I mean, this is a, an anti-democratic movement that wants to break the rules. And Trump was willing to break, break the rules. So even after he left office, you know, they would say things like, I think Trump thought, you know, I think Trump taught this movement a lot. And that's one of the reasons why they are so intent on embracing and promoting these lies of the stolen election, which Donald Trump started to um, promote even before he lost the election at, I believe, was it um, one of the... Um, debates with Biden. He's, he was asked, you know, would you accept the consequences of, of, of a, of a de electoral defeat? And he's like, well, it depends, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. If I'm defeated, no. I mean, that's unbelievable. And then they're all embracing these lies precisely because it fosters, it's anti-democratic. I mean, our, our electoral system or the integrity of our electoral system is the foundation of our democracy. True conservatives would be supporting it and not seeking to destroy it. The new book by Catherine Stewart is The Power Worshippers. Thank you for joining me, Catherine. Great to connect and thank you so much for the conversation. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.